Section 19 of L'Assommoir. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen. L'Assommoir by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Chapter 5. It so happened that the Boches had left the Rue des Poissonniers at the April quarter, and were now taking charge of the great house in the Rue de la Goutte d'Or. It was a curious coincidence all the same. One thing that worried Gervaise, who had lived so quietly in her lodgings in the Rue Neuve, was the thought of again being under the subjection of some unpleasant person, with whom she would be continually quarrelling, either on account of water spilt in the passage, or a door shut too noisily at night-time. Concierges are such a disagreeable class. But it would be a pleasure to be with the Boches. They knew one another. They would always get on well together. It would be just like members of the same family. On the day the Coupeaus went to sign their lease, Gervaise felt her heart swollen with pride as she passed through the high doorway. She was then at length going to live in that house as vast as a little town, with its interminable staircases and passages as long and winding as streets. She was excited by everything, the grey walls with vari-coloured rugs hanging from the windows to dry in the sun, the dingy courtyard with as many holes in its pavement as a public square the hum of activity coming through the walls. She felt joy that she was at last about to realise her ambition. She also felt fear that she would fail and be crushed in the endless struggle against the poverty and starvation she could feel breathing down her neck. It seemed to her that she was doing something very bold, throwing herself into the midst of some machinery in motion as she listened to the blacksmith's hammers and the cabinet-maker's planes hammering and hissing in the depths of the workshops on the ground floor. On that day the water flowing from the dyers under the entrance porch was a very pale apple green. She smilingly stepped over it. To her the colour was a pleasant omen. The meeting with the landlord was to take place in the Boches' room, Monsieur Marescot, a wealthy cutler of the Rue de la Paix, had at one time turned a grindstone through the streets. He was now stated to be worth several millions. He was a man of fifty-five, large and big-boned. Even though he now wore a decoration in his buttonhole, his huge hands were still those of a former working man. It was his joy to carry off the scissors and knives of his tenants to sharpen them himself for the fun of it. He often stayed for hours with his concierges, closed up in the darkness of their lodges, going over the accounts. That's where he did all his business. He was now seated by Madame Boche's kitchen table, listening to her story of how the dressmaker on the third floor, Staircase A, had used a filthy word in refusing to pay her rent. He had had to work precious hard once upon a time, but work was the high road to everything and after counting the two hundred and fifty francs for the first two quarters in advance, and dropping them into his capacious pocket, he related the story of his life, and showed his decoration. Gervaise, however, felt rather ill at ease on account of the Boches' behaviour. They pretended not to know her. They were most assiduous in their attentions to the landlord, 
bowing down before him, watching for his least words, and nodding their approval of them. Madame Boche suddenly ran out and dispersed a group of children who were paddling about in front of the cistern, the tap of which they had turned full on, causing the water to flow over the pavement, and when she returned, upright and severe in her skirts, crossing the courtyard and glancing slowly up at all the windows, as though to assure herself of the good behaviour of the household, she pursed her lips in a way to show with what authority she was invested, now that she reigned over three hundred tenants. Bush again spoke of the dressmaker on the second floor. He advised that she should be turned out. He reckoned up the number of quarters she owed with the importance of a steward whose management might be compromised. Monsieur Marescot approved the suggestion of turning her out, but he wished to wait until the half-quarter. It was hard to turn people out into the street, more especially as it did not put a sou into the landlord's pocket. And Gervaise asked herself with a shudder if she too would be turned out into the street the day that some misfortune rendered her unable to pay. The concierge's lodge was as dismal as a cellar, black from smoke and crowded with dark furniture. All the sunlight fell upon the tailor's workbench by the window. An old frock coat that was being reworked lay on it. The Boche's only child, a four-year-old redhead named Pauline, was sitting on the floor, staring quietly at the veal simmering on the stove, delighted with the sharp odour of cooking that came from the frying-pan. Monsieur Marescot again held out his hand to the zinc-worker, when the latter spoke of the repairs, recalling to his mind a promise he had made to talk the matter over later on. But the landlord grew angry. He had never promised anything. Besides, it was not usual to do any repairs to a shop. However, he consented to go over the place, followed by the coupeaus and Bosch. The little linen draper had carried off all his shelves and counters. The empty shop displayed its blackened ceiling and its cracked wall, on which hung strips of an old yellow paper. In the sonorous emptiness of the place there ensued a heated discussion. M. Marescot exclaimed that it was the business of shopkeepers to embellish their shops, for a shopkeeper might wish to have gold put about everywhere, and he, the landlord, could not put out gold. Then he related that he had spent more than twenty thousand francs in fitting up his premises in the Rue de la Paix. Gervaise, with her woman's obstinacy, kept repeating an argument which she considered unanswerable. He would repaper a lodging, would he not? Then why did he not treat the shop the same as a lodging? She did not ask him for anything else, only to whitewash the ceiling and put some fresh paper on the walls. Bosch all this while remained dignified and impenetrable. He turned about and looked up in the air without expressing an opinion. Coupeau winked at him in vain. He affected not to wish to take advantage of his great influence over the landlord. He ended, however, by making a slight grimace, a little smile accompanied by a nod of the head. Just then, Monsieur Marescot, exasperated, and seemingly very unhappy, and clutching his fingers like a miser being despoiled of his gold, was giving way to Gervaise, promising to do the ceiling and repaper the shop, on condition that she paid for half of the paper. And he hurried away, declining to discuss anything further. 
Now that Boche was alone with the Coupeaus, the concierge became quite talkative and slapped them on the shoulders. Well, well, see what they had gotten. Without his help, they would never have gotten the concessions. Didn't they notice how the landlord had looked to him out of the corner of his eye for advice, and how he'd made up his mind suddenly when he saw Boche smile? He confessed to them confidentially that he was the real boss of the building. It was he who decided who got eviction notices, and who could become tenants. He collected all the rents, and kept them for a couple of weeks in his bureau drawer. That evening the Coupos, to express their gratitude to the Boches, sent them two bottles of wine as a present. The following Monday the workmen started doing up the shop. The purchasing of the paper turned out especially to be a very big affair. Gervaise wanted a grey paper with blue flowers, so as to enliven and brighten the walls. Bosch offered to take her to the dealers, so that she might make her own selection. But the landlord had given him formal instructions not to go beyond the price of fifteen sous the piece. They were there an hour. The laundress kept looking in despair at a very pretty chintz pattern, costing eighteen sous the piece, and thought all the other papers hideous. At length the concierge gave in. He would arrange the matter, and if necessary would make out there was a piece more used than was really the case. So on her way home, Gervaise purchased some tarts for Pauline. She did not like being behindhand. One always gained by behaving nicely to her. The shop was to be ready in four days. The workmen were there three weeks. At first it was arranged that they should merely wash the paint. But this paint, originally maroon, was so dirty and so sad-looking that Gervaise allowed herself to be tempted to have the whole of the frontage painted a light blue with yellow mouldings. Then the repairs seemed as though they would last forever. Coupeau, as he was still not working, arrived early each morning to see how things were going. Bosch left the overcoat or trousers on which he was working to come and supervise. Both of them would stand and watch with their hands behind their backs, puffing on their pipes. The painters were very merry fellows who would often desert their work to stand in the middle of the shop and join the discussion, shaking their heads for hours, admiring the work already done. The ceiling had been whitewashed quickly, but the paint on the walls never seemed to dry in a hurry. Around nine o'clock the painters would arrive with their paint pots, which they stuck in a corner. They would look around and then disappear. Perhaps they went to eat breakfast. Sometimes Coupeau would take everyone for a drink, Bosch, the two painters, and any of Coupeau's friends who were nearby. This meant another afternoon wasted. Gervaise's patience was thoroughly exhausted, when suddenly everything was finished in two days. The paint varnished, the paper hung, and the dirt all cleared away. The workmen had finished it off as though they were playing, whistling away on their ladders and singing loud enough to deafen the whole neighbourhood. The moving in took place at once. During the first few days, Gervaise felt as delighted as a child. Whenever she crossed the road on returning from some errand, she lingered to smile at her home. From a distance her shop appeared light and gay with its pale blue signboard, 
on which the word laundress was painted in big yellow letters amidst the dark row of the other frontages in the window closed in behind by little muslin curtains and hung on either side with blue paper to show off the whiteness of the linen some shirts were displayed with some women's caps hanging above them on wires she thought her shop looked pretty being the same colour as the heavens inside there was more blue the paper in imitation of a pompadour chintz represented a trellis overgrown with morning glories a huge table taking up two-thirds of the room was her ironing table it was covered with thick blanketing and draped with a strip of cretonne patterned with blue flower sprays that hid the trestles beneath gervaise was enchanted with her pretty establishment and would often seat herself on a stool and sigh with contentment delighted with all the new equipment her first glance always went to the cast-iron stove where the irons were heated ten at a time arranged over the heat on slanting rests she would kneel down to look into the stove to make sure the apprentice had not put in too much coke the lodging at the back of the shop was quite decent the coupeaus slept in the first room where they also did the cooking and took their meals a door at the back opened onto the courtyard of the house nana's bed was in the right-hand room which was lighted by a little round window close to the ceiling as for etienne he shared the left-hand room with the dirty clothes enormous bundles of which lay about on the floor however there was one disadvantage the coupeaus would not admit it at first but the damp ran down the walls and it was impossible to see clearly in the place after three o'clock in the afternoon in the neighbourhood the new shop produced a great sensation the coupeaus were accused of going too fast and making too much fuss they had in fact spent the five hundred francs lent by the Gouget in fitting up the shop and in moving without keeping sufficient to live upon for a fortnight as they had intended doing the morning that gervaise took down her shutters for the first time she had just six francs in her purse but that did not worry her customers began to arrive and things seemed promising a week later on the saturday before going to bed she remained two hours making calculations on a piece of paper and she awoke coupeau to tell him with a bright look on her face that there were hundreds and thousands of francs to be made if only they were careful ah well said madame lorilleux all over the rue de la goutte d'or my fool of a brother is seeing some funny things all that was wanting was that clump clump should go about so haughty becomes her well doesn't it the lorilleurs had declared a feud to the death against gervaise to begin with they had almost died of rage during the time while the repairs were being done to the shop if they caught sight of the painters from a distance they would walk on the other side of the way and go up to their rooms with their teeth set a blue shop for that nobody it was enough to discourage all honest hard-working people besides the second day after the shop opened the apprentice happened to throw out a bowl of starch just at the moment when madame lorilleux was passing the zinc worker's sister caused a great commotion in the street accusing her sister-in-law of insulting her through her employees this broke off all relations now they only exchanged terrible glares when they encountered each other 
Yes, she leads a pretty life, Madame Lorieux kept saying. We all know where the money came from that she paid for her wretched shop. She borrowed it from the blacksmith, and he springs from a nice family too. Didn't the father cut his own throat to save the guillotine the trouble of doing so? Anyhow, there was something disreputable of that sort. End of the first part of chapter 5 Recording by Martin Geeson in Hazelmere, Surrey